Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. morning. Good morning. And I hope everyone has had um, a lot of coffee this morning. I know there are um, so many people who are, you know, just feeling like it's an hour earlier because daylight saving time uh, was implemented on Sunday again. And, you know, it's just it's it's my opinion that Congress really needs to act on this. And um, for those of you who aren't aware, last year in March of 2022, the United States Senate actually passed a bipartisan bill that approved to make daylight saving time permanent. And so really, this is uh, just up to to Congress. And so, you know, well, this isn't the biggest issue facing America today. I think this would be great if we all were more like Arizona and just said, you know, let's let's end the back and forth and the moving of the clocks and uh, just, you know, keep on one time. And the U.S. Senate, at least, uh, decided that um, if approved, we would all stay the hour forward. So the time that we are currently in and having the long uh, the long lazy days of summer, as my mom used to say, uh, would still stay in place. And, you know, for those who are concerned about kids um, in the morning uh, for the bus stop and, you know, making sure that that's um, lighter, well, you know, let's just then move um, perhaps the day and hour back. I mean, we can adjust around this, but I think this is a great idea. And, um, you know, for what it's worth, I tweeted to Congress. So, you know, if that happens, well, you're welcome. So <laughs> then uh, we can we can move forward. But um, the big news, of course, still being discussed around the country today is uh, what is going on with the Silicon Valley Bank and um, whether or not this is a bailout for the federal government to uh, say that they are going to uh, go ahead and make sure to um, to have the, the access granted to all of the deposit and to deposits and to make sure to protect the depositors. And you know, does this really constitute a bailout? I think that's um, an interesting place to start. So uh, our friend Tho Bishop, who is with the uh, Mises Institute, joins us this morning, and uh, they are actually the Mises Institute, of course, which is uh, great on all of the conservative economic philosophy and um, the broader conversation. They're going to have a Twitter spaces today at 4 p.m. Um, with several of uh, their their good thought leaders. So you might want to tune into that today. Um, if you're on Twitter, you know, the interesting part of, of spaces is that you get a lot of unique voices. That's just an audio broadcast and it's live and uh, you can go in and listen. We've done a few great ones I've participated in with uh, Project Veritas, a few other of our friends. Um, so that's going to be at 4 p.m. Eastern today. But um, so good morning and, um, you know, welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. And first question, you know, with SVB Bank, um, in your opinion, and why or why not, do, do you think that um, having this guarantee of the depositors does actually constitute a bailout? Good morning, Jenna, and I, I fully support your, your lobbying Congress on, on the uh, daylight savings time <laughs> issue entirely. Um, thank, thank you for you. mentioning our space as well. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is a bailout, and it's a bailout not simply of Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, this is a, a, a very broad systemic change. And unfortunately, what we're seeing again is that the federal economic authorities in this country are breaking the rules that have been set for decades. 
without any foresight about what's coming next. You know, I want to remind your audience that just last week, Jerome Powell, who I, I don't think is the villain in this. I'm not trying to, to, to punch at Jay Powell. I think he's been trying to do a very difficult situation this past couple of years. Um, I have problems with the Fed as a whole, but I, I think he's been trying to do the right thing. Last week, he said he saw no systemic risk as a result from the very aggressive, I think appropriate, interest rate hikes that the Fed has been taking. And yet, three days later, this all falls apart. And the problem is that this goes to if the Fed can't project what's happening three days from now, if the Treasury is making up rules, we have, we have broken every this, – this past week, we broke the golden rule of emergency lending, which is to lend freely if needed, fine, lender of last resort, but to do it at, uh, uh, with good collateral and with a penalty rate for it. Instead, we are giving banks at par value – for the assets. So we have a lot of mortgage-backed securities within banks. The Fed is now taking on as part of this effective bailout, this insurance of deposits. Well, a lot of those mortgage-backed securities are not worth what they were made at right now. And so this is a very, very big issue. This has never happened on the global stage. Um, you know, this is something that economists on the left and right will tell you. This is, this is unprecedented. And we have people that have had a very bad track record of understanding the consequences of their actions giving themselves yet again more power without any congressional oversight. I mean, this is a very big deal, and it all goes down to this very simple fact that the fundamentals of the modern financial system are fundamentally unsound, and people in power, instead of trying to deal with that underlying issue, are dealing crisis to crisis, making changes that they don't fully understand. Yeah, and, and it just seems like uh, you know a lot of people don't have confidence in the Fed, and I think that's very appropriate. So, from a just a pure policy perspective, you know, especially moving forward into the twenty twenty four primaries and all this, if if you are advising uh, presidential candidates, you know, of either party, I mean, just in terms of what's good for the country is good um, fiscal and economic policy. What are the changes uh, to the Fed that would actually cure these types of issues? Well, unfortunately, there, there isn't a silver bullet out there in terms of, you know, if we tweak this or, or change that, everything is, is fine. But we're dealing with, you know, the, the consequences we're dealing with today are the results of decisions made back in 2008, 2009, 2010, and are given more pressure by decades-long issues in terms of spending, in terms of the way we conducted monetary policy. So I, mean, I think of the old adage of Thomas Sowell, right? There are no solutions. There are always trade. There are only trade-offs. And so what we're like, what we have basically right now is is that the the Fed and and the U.S. government as a whole, they're in this very difficult situation. On now, what are they prioritizing? Is it the fight on inflation, which has been the primary target of Powell? This is why we've had significant rate hikes in the last year and a half, and this is why we now have interest rates that nobody was forecasting two years ago. Nobody had priced into their balance sheets. So if, if you are a financial manager, right, we are now living in a world that no one thought was possible. And since you're dealing with longer-term decisions on that, right, it's, it, you, no, no one expected this. So it's, you, you know, that, that, it, it's not surprising that things break. This is typically what happens when you have these rate hikes. But these rate hikes were necessary because of the inflation side of it. So the question is, what do you prioritize, the dollar or the banking system? And one of the big problems we have right now, and, and for those, I, I'm sure many of your audience have, have heard about kind of the Greek reset, might have concerns about, you know, this, this uh, consolidation of power. Well, what we've essentially created 
and, and one of the reasons why regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank, like Signature, like others that have their own problems that haven't quite gotten to that level yet, is that we've essentially created two tiers of banks. We've created the two big-to-fail banks of Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and the like, and we've created everyone else. The two big-to-fail banks, they get to benefit from the security that you know they, they've got that, that, that stamp. They, they've been the ones that benefited tremendously for this last week. You have people pouring assets into that. And it's the regional banks that have been that, – that don't enjoy that same protection and yet can also – engage a little bit more riskily, can, can buy some more, can, can buy some riskier assets. And this is the problem is that we have an entire financial system saturated with risk because the very low interest rate environment required banks to in, buy up assets they might not have otherwise bought. Um, they, they are holding, you know, they, 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 they've done deals with companies that uh, their investments are, are, aren't looking as good right now. Again, it's, it's not a surprise that Silicon Valley was kind of the tip of the spear here because big tech in particular, you've got a lot of late large companies that have never been profitable. Big brands like Etsy and, and Uber and Airbnb have never been profitable, and they've been able to get along as well as long as they have because of this low interest rate environment. And so ultimately, we need policymakers to decide what is your priority going to be? Is it going to be um, – dealing with the inflation aspect of it, in which case you will have banks fail. You're, you're going to have pain from that. You're going to have, you're going to have a, a reset of, of the financial system, which we should have had in 2008. They, 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 went to, they took the easy way out in 2008. They flooded the market with liquidity. They, 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 you know, they, they pumped money into the system. Fundamental necessary changes you need in a recession – to, to kind of restructure things and get things right. And so ultimately, we, we, any decision out there is either going to be inflationary. And I, I, I get a, we have CPI numbers coming out this week. I think the inflationary issue is going to get worse, which is very bad for every single American out there. Anyone that uses the dollar, you're going to feel the consequences of, the, of this weekend's actions. I think we should be prioritizing the safety and soundness of the dollar and getting serious about monetary policy at the expense of some banks out there that are going to fail. Uh, but again, you're not going to be able to have your cake and eat it too. You're not going to be able to get to, to control inflation and yet also pump liquidity in the banking system to make sure that these banks don't go under. I think we should be prioritizing the dollar. I think our priority should be again, restoring soundness to the dollar and getting serious on that side. Instead, we're going to bail out the banks yet again. And again, I, I'm not, I don't fault the, the, the businesses that are doing uh, that are, are you, you know, invested in Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, some of them are, are fine companies. You know, I, I, I you know. I don't think it's 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 unfair to say I'm, I'm I'm sympathetic to David Sachs on this, where he said, "Well, you know, we, we shouldn't be beating up on on the tech companies that invest. That's fine, whatever." Um, but ultimately, though, we we have to at some point, America has to get a policymakers need to get serious. That instead of kicking the can down the road, whether it's monetary policy, whether it's banking policy, whether it's spending, whether it's entitlements, at some point, we have to get serious about our economic reality. What we have right now is economic denialism. And that's extremely dangerous, perhaps less so for policymakers. Dianne Feinstein probably is going to have to live with the consequences of her decisions in any meaningful way. But, you know, her, her grandchildren, uh, her, her great-grandchildren, uh, people in the 30s and 40s, we, we, we are going to deal with this. And that's where you know, we, we, need, we need some sort of grown-ups in the room. And unfortunately, our political system right now is not rewarding grown-ups in the room. 
Yeah, and, and well said. And I'm speaking with Tho Bishop, who is a part of the Mises Institute, and you can listen uh, more to the Spaces conversation that will be uh, longer and, and a little more broad uh, this afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just uh, go to Twitter, go to at uh, Mises, and, and uh, that link is posted. I also posted it on my Twitter page if you follow me. And in the last few minutes that we have here um, this morning, though, you know, I'm I mean, obviously, I think conservatives generally are not confident in um, the Biden administration's priorities. And, you know, what Janet Yellen is saying, there's not a lot of trust there. And um, and there's some perspective from, you know, some people that are a little bit on um, more of the urgent side that are suggesting that this is purposeful in terms of setting the policy and even from the Fed that is trying to make the dollar more in line with the peso, you know, and saying, okay, we're going to get to $14 uh, bread lines. And, you know, some of these, um, these things where the dollar is just rapidly going to lose value. And so, um, but, but they're more suggesting that some of this is intentional and it's going to purposefully be worse than 2008. Um, What are, where do you see the truth in that, if there is a truth to that, and and eventually, um, do you think that this is going to be uh, worse than 2008, or what, in, in terms of practical implications, can people expect? I, I think, inevitably, we, we are dealing with bigger problems than we did with 2008, because we didn't fix the problems in 2008, right? So, so we, we, you know, we, we, we've, we, we shot our economy with a, with a painkiller, and then we've been walking around on a broken leg for for ten years, and the damage done after you know after that time, it's more structural is is the problem there. And so when, whenever and the problem is, and, and the decisions of this past week have prolonged that period, right? We're, we're not dealing with the underlying consequences; we're covering it up, and and that is the problem here. And I, I do think that inevitably, there's a lot of very powerful people, and and sometimes they're more explicit about this than others. Whenever you have the next big currency crisis. And I don't think the one advantage America has is that most other parts of the world have the same problem. ECB's in no better situation. Japan's in no better situation. China's in no better situation. This is something that's global in scale. Whenever you have that next big financial crisis where authorities finally can't act enough to stop the problem, I think you're going to have a major push for further consolidation away from a national scale to a global scale. The IMF might step in and try to bail out the Fed or something like that. And that creates a very dangerous perspective of a, of a one, the potential for a one-world currency, a one-world central bank digital currency, perhaps. Uh, Janet Yellen has been trying to consolidate and homogenize tax rates around the, the world already. There's a big push for consolidation of this financial power, and that's the most dangerous thing to American sovereignty and to civil liberties. That's what we need to stop, and we need Republicans out there pounding that table for that. Absolutely. Well, Tho Bishop, really appreciate your insights. There's a lot more to that conversation, and certainly uh, we'll have you back on soon. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Persecuted believers in Asia, they love their enemies and they count it all joy to suffer for the Lord. This is Bible League International. Abir is a former Islamic leader in Bangladesh. When he became a believer, he was beaten, verbally abused, his home was vandalized, he was forced to move to another city, and he was labeled a traitor. But he holds to the precious promises of God he reads every day in his Bible. I asked Abir, you were beaten, you were cast out. It's so easy to hate 
people that do this to you? He said, no, I love them. Most of us here in America cannot relate to the level of persecution that Christians like Abir in Bangladesh and others throughout Asia are facing on a daily basis. Let's send them the word of God they need and crave to be able to endure and persevere. And that's why we're holding this campaign, Fan the Flame. $5 sends a Bible, $100 sends 20 every gift matched. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or give it sendbiblesnow.org. Sendbiblesnow.org. And God bless Bless you for caring. This is Pause to Pray. A chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today we pray for Raul Gupta, Director of National Drug Control Policy. As our nation's drugs are, he evaluates, coordinates, and oversees anti-drug efforts in our country. Psalm 138.7 reminds us of the protection the Lord provides us. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray. Dear God, we ask you to guide Raul Gupta as he leads the fight against drug abuse in our country. We ask this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, Go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. Federal Judge Kyle Duncan had been invited to deliver a speech to the Federalist Society chapter at Stanford Law School. Unfortunately, a mob of left-wing students shut down the speech. Judge Duncan appealed to administrators for help with the unruly crowd, but instead he got a dressing down. Tyrion Steinbach, the Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, scolded Judge Duncan for nearly six minutes. The judge ended his remarks early and walked out in disgust. He rightly summed up the event by saying the inmates had gotten control of the asylum. Now Stanford issued an apology which appeared to be sincere, and it's a good start. But Stanford needs to send a clear message that such behavior is unacceptable, especially in a law school. Dean Steinbach needs to be fired. The Department of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion needs to be disbanded. And any student who disrupted the speech should be suspended. I'm Todd Starnes. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back, and it's time for everyone's favorite segment of the week, at least one of my favorites, because our good friend Todd Starnes, who is, of course, the host of the Toddcast and runs ToddStarnes.com, where you can read all of the top trending headlines, is joining us this morning. Todd, how are you? Hi, Jenna. Doing well. Hope you are, too. Happy Bracket Day and happy Pie Day, by the way. Oh, that's right. It is pie day. Well, I should have had a pie with my coffee for breakfast this morning. This is, I I love, I love having birthday cake with my coffee for my entire like birthday week. So I need to go and, you know, I'll just celebrate pie day for the next couple days. (laughs) Well, I'm a sweet potato pie man myself. So there you go. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's great. And, did, and you wrote a, um, a, a cookbook or something, didn't you? I did. It's a cook. It's really a devotion book with recipes called Our Daily Biscuit Devotions with a Drawl, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It was. It's the only book I've written, Jenna, where I haven't gotten death threats. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm shocked that biscuits and gravy aren't controversial somewhere. I'm sure that the, it's it's got to be like white supremacists somewhere promoting you know something that somebody could shut down your speech, right? Well, we're working on a northern version of the devotion book called Our Daily Bagel Devotions with a Schmear. So we're, we're <laughs> it's still in production. <laughs> then there you go. Well, you, your speech probably will get shut down similarly to uh, a, a judge at Stanford Law School uh, earlier this week. And this story was at uh, toddstarns.com. So a federal judge had been invited to deliver a speech to the Federalist Society chapter at Stanford Law School. But unfortunately, a mob of left-wing students shut down the speech. And, you know, I remember, Todd, when I was in law school at the University of Richmond, um, which is not, you know, specifically a conservative Christian school like, you know, um, Liberty University Law School or Regent or something, but we had the chapter of FedSoc. And actually, a then former Justice Scalia came and spoke, which was amazing. Um, I, got, I actually got to meet him. And I don't remember, you know, any of our law school events having student protests and a diversity, equity, and inclusion professor helping shut down a judge's speech. I mean, what does this tell you when this is at a law school, especially? Well, it's a, it's a great point. And by the way, University of Richmond, go Spiders, uh, used to be a great Baptist school way back in the day. Um, Federal Judge Kyle Duncan had been invited uh, to deliver this speech to the Federalist Society chapter uh, at Stanford Law School. And uh, typically, and, and you've been there, done this, Jenna, when you're, you're invited to speak, and inevitably the other side will show up, hecklers will show up. But in this instance, I mean, these students were downright fascist. And they showed up, they occupied the room where this speech was being delivered, and they shouted down uh, the, the federal judge. I mean, and this is a big deal uh, to have a federal judge on campus speaking to law students. And the, and the people that were heckling were, in fact, law students, which I think was even more troubling. So there was a call for help, and they, the, so the, they, the dean of diversity, equity, and inclusion showed up. But instead of shutting down the hecklers, she commenced to dressing down the federal judge in this screed, and you can watch it on our website, for nearly six minutes. And and finally, the judge, he ended his remarks early, walked out in disgust, and uh, went to some of the conservative news outlets, I believe Washington Free Beacon. And he said, and this is an interesting quote, he says, don't feel sorry for me. I'm a life-tenured federal judge. What outrages me is that these kids are being treated like dog poop by fellow students and administrators. And he's got a really good point here, Jenna, because on university campuses across the nation, conservatives and their supporters and their defenders and their activists are being shut down and shut out of the conversation. And this has to be addressed for, for the, really the, the health and the future of our great nation. It really does. And, you know, what, what's so unfortunate to me and even I think worse than an undergrad university campus where you know you have students that are majoring in gender studies or underwater basket weaving you know things that really are going to put them on a good path for for really good careers in their lives Um, you know these are law students who 
are being trained, hopefully, uh, to go into courtrooms and advocate for opposing sides. I mean, we have an adversarial system for a reason. And when they can't even endure speech that from a judge that they don't prefer, I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, how are you going to possibly represent an adversarial system because I guarantee you, you're going to go into a lot of courtrooms where you don't like what a judge has to say to you or your client, and you still have to be very respectful to the court. And that's part of our uh, professional system. But I think we're seeing, Todd, uh, just this total breakdown of the ability for leftists to even contemplate uh, actually enduring speech that, that they just that they disagree with. And so you're right. I think that it is it is completely fascist because they're wanting to shut it down even from a judge that in their own profession, they're supposed to at least respect the office. Exactly. And there was no respect. Here's how bad it was. So the Stanford's president and the dean of the law school wrote a joint apology. It, really, it was an apology letter, but it, and it, it, they did a good job. I, I thought it was a well-written apology, but it, was, it did not go far enough. And this is the kind of thing that really they need to send a message nationwide to other law schools. And I, I wrote in the, the column that the dean and, – and by the way, the audio version of this was my commentary on AFR – that the dean needs to be fired, the Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion needs to be disbanded, and any of the law students who disrupted the speech need to be censored censured or, or suspended. There needs to be a punishment involved here so they know that, that, that when you silence free speech, it will be dealt with harshly. Yes, and and I would agree with that, and and it, and hopefully the school will take actions. But you know what's interesting to me as well, and a lot of people don't know this, is part of um, getting bar license. You actually, as a future lawyer, so law students should be concerned about not only um, passing the. Um, you know, rules of professional responsibility exam, which is a portion of the bar, but also the character and fitness test. And, you know, these students need to be really careful because if they have a suspension on their record um, from school that, or they participated in this type of event, I mean, that's something that should go to their character and fitness portion of the bar later because future judges aren't going to want to deal with this type of uh, conduct or this type of attitude in their courtroom. So, you know, that's something that that law students in particular, I think, should be um, very concerned about. But let's also talk, Todd, about the fact that a law school like Stanford has a diversity, equity and inclusion dean to begin with. I mean, is this something that I mean, I'm not aware of this being um, a traditional, you know, dean role in most law schools, and and so is this something that's, to your knowledge, unique to Stanford? No, this is happening, and and many public universities around the nation have these. Um, however, there is some there is some pushback, and we're right now in the state of Texas, for example, uh, there's a Senate bill that would actually ban these DEI offices, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, 
and also it would forbid public universities and colleges from issuing statements about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So uh, this is uh, this is a debate that's being waged right now, and state lawmakers. And again, this is why it's so vitally important, as Roe v. Wade taught us, that the fight goes back to the state legislatures, and that's really where we're going to have to duke this out. And so, if you have a public university, I guarantee you there is a diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion program already in place. And you better watch out because they specifically target evangelical Christians and conservatives. Yeah, of course they do. And this is why, I mean, I went to Colorado State for undergrad. And and again, you know, this was back in the day where it's still, um, it was still, of course, you know, a lot of leftist ideas. I mean, my ethics professor in undergrad um, started out the class saying, you know, and ethics is this, this is just to let you know where you stand on morality and where you are on the spectrum. But there's not really, you know, a right answer here. And I, I raised my hand going, okay, then why am I taking a class that's called ethics? I mean, you know, this is way back in the day that they're still teaching relativism and, you know, we can't offend people. But, um, you know, there was there was no such thing, at least openly, uh, uh, as DEI, at least on the state um, campus there. But but I, I guarantee you, um, like you said, there are, there are um, you know, these types of offices that are prolific across state universities. I'm sad to see that um, go into law schools as well. But, you know, Todd, this is also why parents really need to consider um, where their kids are choosing to go to college. Because, you know, even if you've homeschooled all the way through, even if you've been, um, you know, a Christian school parent all all the way through, um, the statistics of even Christian young people who then go to a an openly secular progressive leftist college, the amount of, of kids and young adults that abandon their faith in college once they reach these indoctrination camps are shocking. And I would really encourage parents who are listening to prayerfully consider encouraging um, your young people to choose a Christian education, um, like our good friends at Liberty University or, you know, or Hillsdale or others, you know, all, all around the country that um, can continue to help promote their faith. Um, so, so Todd, I also want to get your, uh, your comment on another story this morning, which is that a former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Um, of course, we're very happy that our friend Sarah Sanders is now the governor of Arkansas because um, Asa Hutchinson is such a rhino, in my opinion. I have, I have not been a fan um, for a long time of him, but he called on President Trump to drop out of the 2024 contest if President Trump is indicted. Of course, uh, Michael Cohen testified in New York yesterday, and I think um, a lot of leftists are gleefully waiting uh, to see whether or not uh, New York will indict Donald Trump. And so now um, Asa Hutchinson is calling on Trump to drop out of the 2024 race if indicted. Uh, To me, Todd, this is just encouraging an indictment for that specific purpose, right? Well, let me be clear about Asa Hutchinson. My waitress, Loretta, down at the Waffle House on Germantown Parkway, has a better shot of becoming the next president of the United States than Asa Hutchinson does. So let's let's understand, you know, what we're dealing with here. This guy is really a nobody. 
uh, when it comes to Republican politics. He is an establishment Republican. And ultimately, and, and this has been well documented, not just by um, uh, by conservatives, but even by liberals, uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times uh, actually said that if an indictment does come down, this is really going to be a nothing burger. Uh, there's really not going to be a lot there. Of course, President Trump is already on record uh, saying that he is not going to pull out of the race if, in fact, he is indicted. But I think the broader issue here, um, Jeanette, I don't know if you've, you're getting this vibe, but something weird, weirder is going on within the conservative-ish world now, and I say conservative-ish, because of something Tucker Carlson and Alex Jones said, and these guys are more of the libertarian um, wing, I guess, of conservatism, if, if that's a fair description. Both of them said something about President Trump yesterday, and we're going to be playing this audio on our national show later today. They referred to President Trump as autistic. And I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Are we starting to see a break among that crowd? And if that's the case, my question is, where does the where does the voting base go? I mean, you had thousands of people showing up yesterday in Iowa to greet President Trump. So at, at some point you wonder, is conservative media marginalizing itself as they continue to move away from Donald Trump? That's a really interesting uh point there, Todd, and I had not heard anyone uh, yet at least, you know, and so I'll have to listen to your audio later about calling uh, President Trump autistic, and I wonder, you know, my, my immediate reaction to that is um, whether or not they're trying to push this because President Trump came out openly last week um, saying that he agreed with mental competency uh, tests for candidates. And so whether they're going to try to then say, well, you know, you're not fit because of some other um, rationale like that. But, you know, it's really interesting to me to see all of these things. And, and I actually disagree with President Trump on that issue. I don't think that there um, is there should be any sort of mental competency test, that at least that's required, because that's adding to the U.S. Constitution that um, if we as a country want to go in that direction and we want to have a constitutional amendment that amends Article 2, great, we can do that. But until we actually go through that very difficult process, then we as the voters, we get to have the metric. And if we decide, you know, we, we want to, um, to, to not vote for a president that hasn't released uh, their mental competency exam, well, we can do that individually, but it shouldn't be required. But I just wonder if some of these things like, um, you know, this cloud of an indictment or, um, you know, having these types of um, mental competency things are on purpose just trying to then be used against President Trump, because that's the leftist ultimate goal, is to just get him to not run. And they don't want to win fair and square. They want to just force him out of the race. So um, so we have just um, about a, a little over a minute here. Um, so closing thoughts on that. Look, I, I, I think we're going to be in for, for a long haul here, and there's there's a lot of ground to cover. I think it's going to be important, especially for evangelical voters. First of all, engage in the political process. If you've only got 20% of evangelicals voting, you're never going to win. So we've got to mobilize the base. 
But we also have to take a hard look at the issues. And, Jenna, this is maybe a conversation for another day, but a conversation that needs to be had is we are watching the liberalization of the conservative movement on some of the significant issues, culture issues of the day, uh, especially in the area of marriage So and and the, the whole LGBT movement. And that's something that we're all going to have to come to terms with uh, as yep. the Republican Party takes a turn to embracing that uh, so it's really it's, good it's, thoughts yeah thanks todd and we'll be right back this is the time where we all better be on our knees in front of our windows where we better have the boldness to stand on the truth of god's word where our allegiance better be to him listen he alone has an enduring kingdom he alone he alone makes promises and keeps them god alone nobody else Airing the Addisons, weekday afternoons at 2 Central on American Family Radio. Hey, did you hear? MoneyWise is different. It's now Faith and Finance with Rob West. Don't worry, Rob will still help build your faith while giving biblical advice about your finances. It's just a different name. From a diversification perspective, I like uh, properly diversified stock and bond portfolio, especially given where the market is right now. Faith and Finance with Rob West. Weekdays at 9 a.m. Central on AFR or catch the podcast at AFR.net. You shall not murder. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. According to the Guttmacher Institute, the majority of babies killed in the womb have been murdered by chemical abortions since 2020. Most advocates for the sanctity of human life are familiar with surgical abortions performed by doctors in murder mills. But since 2020, most abortions are carried out by pregnant mothers ingesting lethal drugs like mifepristone and misoprostol. Populist education played a pivotal role in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey being overturned. It also played a huge role in moving people to embrace the sanctity of human life. In this post-Roe environment, it's important for people to understand we've entered the chemical abortion era. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Let's be real. Retirement is expensive and inflation is making it even harder with the cost of everything going up from pet food to a dozen eggs. Wouldn't it be great if the cost of your health care could go down? Well, MediShare 65 plus is $99 a month for ages 65 to 74. And for many with Medicare Parts A and B looking at other options, that's 50% or more saved per month. No gimmicks. It's $99 a month, and you can use any Medicare-approved doctor or facility, and you get 24-7 access to telehealth from the convenience of your home. Better yet, MediShare is a Christian nonprofit organization. It's a community that will pray for you and encourage you. And since we've cut out the middleman, you get to keep the savings. Call now. You can learn more about MediShare 65+. plus. Here's the number, 833-45-BIBLE. That's 833-45-BIBLE, 833-45-BIBLE. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, filing under the uh, hypocrite <laughs> file in our, in our uh, stories this morning, a GOP leader is pausing social media after liking 
LGBTQ posts. So according to the AP, Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally announced yesterday that he is pausing all social media activity after revelations that he repeatedly commented on posts of nearly nude photos of a young gay model and other LGBTQ personalities. So this is genuinely horrendous. Um, And he defended himself as saying, quote, my intent was always engagement and encouragement. Well, joining me now to react is our good friend, Alan West, who is the host of the Steadfast and Loyal podcast and former member of Congress. And Alan, you know, beyond just the blatant hypocrisy of this, my, my question here is, like, did he not think that somebody would eventually notice this and didn't he care? Or are these types of rhino Republican hypocrites just, you know, just blatantly going and doing whatever they want, just thinking that there's never going to be any accountability? Well, Jenna, good morning to you. And being a graduate of the University of Tennessee, I have to classify this as drill sergeant would say stuck on stupid. Uh, here you are, the lieutenant governor of the state of Tennessee, and you don't think that anyone's following you on social media and, and no one is going to realize that you're making comments such as this. And, you, and you're right. It is about the hypocrisy that you see out there. You know, you can't stand up and say well, on one side house, you're, you're for family values and all of these type of things. And then this is what you're out doing. And the Bible says that which is done in the darkness will eventually come to light. So uh, at first he was quite arrogant about it, and now he's saying this is about engagement and encouragement. Give me a break. He's just a perverted old man, and just go ahead and own it. Yeah, 100%. And and I, I think that is stated so clearly. Um, but, you know, this type of thing, so now, now he's just saying, well, I'm going to uh, pause all of my engagement on social media, kind of do a me culpa. And he's it, really what he's doing, and I'm sure his comm shop is telling him, um, just hopefully this will die down and won't actually get a lot of attention. And with all of the other things going on in the world today, mm-hmm. I don't think there is a lot of attention that is being paid to this. And so the reason that I bring it up this morning is that, you know, frankly, uh, Alan, I'm just just tired of you know Christians and and people who run in the Republican Party circles. I don't know if he even identifies as a Christian or you know if, I don't I don't know this Lieutenant Governor um, well in terms of what his professed politics are. But at least he's mm-hmm. saying he's Republican. And in this t- state of Tennessee, you know, you have bills that are trying to protect against um, you know the 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 uh, surgeries on minors um, for trans. You know, hopefully combating some of this um, whole LGBT agenda. And then you have the lieutenant governor going out there and making these types of comments. I mean, he was so stupid that he didn't even do this through some kind of burner account. I mean, at least Mitt Romney was was, was a little bit smarter to have, you know, what was it, Pierre Delecto or whatever. But, you know, but this type of thing, it's just so easy then for the left to come back and say, hey, Republicans, you don't really believe what you're espousing. And that's the frustration that I have. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I sit out here in Texas and we've got all of these drag shows uh, at gay bars and things of this nature. And we have child uh, gender mutilation surgeries happening out here. And where are our Republican leaders here in Texas? The governor, the lieutenant governor, the, the House, the Senate. I mean, in the last legislative session, they killed legislation that would have protected children from these child gender mutilation uh, surgeries and also hormonal therapies and puberty blockers. So you just had a great conversation with uh, Mr. Starnes there and talking about this hypocrisy and talking about how 
you know, the Republican Party is trying to liberalize themselves and embrace this. Why? I guess they want to have a certain voting block, but this voting block is never going to come toward them. So why do you sacrifice your values to try to have political popularity? And that, that's called populism. And I think it's a very dangerous thing, and it ends up watering down your message. And again, it is something that the left can point at you and say, yeah, okay, you guys say this stuff during the day, but we know what you're doing on social media at night. Right. And and I think it is really um, discouraging to see that there are a lot of these uh, weak Republicans that are refusing to stand up for the values that we as a party should believe in. That is the platform, mm-hmm. at least from the national RNC. And, you know, even for some, you mentioned um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott. I mean, a lot of people were really frustrated, uh, myself included, um, you know, but I know they're in Texas uh, with, for example, former President Trump for uh, endorsing Greg Abbott to run again and you know you ran um for for governor um and you know they're in the state of texas and and that's something i think that um a lot of people who are looking at races are frustrated that people who have the name recognition you know they i saw fox news propping uh greg abbott up um without asking him the difficult questions and then we wonder why in the state of Texas, for example, we don't get more things passed that are genuinely grounded in what the conservative movement and the base want to accomplish. So, you know, moving forward into 2024, I mean, I think everybody's focus is on the presidential race, but um, state and local politics matter as well. And so, you know, just from the perspective of the state of Texas, uh, really quick, since you mentioned Governor Abbott, who, you know, to me is, you know, he's done some good, but is basically a rhino. Um, you know, Republican name in name only um, for those who aren't familiar with that. Um, you mm-hmm. know, what is the landscape of Texas looking like um, right now? Well, I mean, look at what's happening on the border when you have the United States Constitution, which says that the federal government does not uh, do their constitutional duty as in Article four, Section four to protect every state from invasion. This is what a state can do. But yet we have millions of people pouring across the border. You just saw yesterday where thousands came across the bridge in El Paso. So we're not doing anything on that front. We're not doing anything reference the issues of sexualization of our children and protecting them from these puberty blockers, hormonal therapies. We're not doing anything as far as property taxes. So when you think about what a Republican governor is and what a a red state looks like. I mean, look at what Florida's done. I mean, the fact that Joe Biden is demonizing Florida, calling it sinful, the fact that they want to protect children from these these butchers, these doctors out there that are mutilating kids' bodies, but yet that's not happening here in Texas. So I think that that comparison shows you the the incredible difference. Uh, You know, school choice and, and parental choice and educational freedom, that's being passed in Florida. That's not being passed in Texas. So there's a lot of concerns about the direction that Texas is going, especially when you have all of these California businesses and individuals moving in here. Uh, I live in Dallas County. Dallas County went 63% for Robert Francis O'Rourke, who calls himself Beto. And that's a big deal when you look at Harris County, Dallas County, uh, Austin, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. It looks more like San Francisco. So Texas is slowly slipping away, and the the rural east and west uh, Texas cannot continue to prop it up for very much longer. And and this is why the state and local races absolutely matter. And I think um, the emphasis on 
the the state races uh, really need to be considered, especially as we are moving forward into a presidential election cycle. I feel like a mm-hmm. lot of that gets lost in the conversation um, that we only really draw out in at least the mainstream media uh, during the midterms when there's less mm-hmm. emphasis on the presidential cycle. So, you know, people really do need to be actively engaged. And, you know, for, for my home state of Colorado, I mean, that's where Texas is now. Colorado was, you know, maybe 15 years ago where there was. absolutely, And yeah, and, and it's and now it's incredibly blue. I mean, it is a left-dominated state. We don't have a majority in either house or in the governor's office, um, you know, in either chamber. And right now is where the people of the state of Texas can reclaim Texas for conservatism. And I think people need to genuinely be aware of what's going on in their state, get engaged and get involved. And then look at uh, this Ellen West um, from just speaking of, of hypocrisy and governors and the state and local level. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who, of course, is uh, the judge or the um, the governor, rather, of Michigan, uh, says that her uh, covid restrictions in hindsight just don't make a lot of sense. And so, (laughs) you know, she um, she's now, I think, you know, heading into um, the the presidential election cycle and wanting to prop up the Democrats. And so now where, you know, we learned that state leadership matters in Uh, in and throughout the aftermath of 2020. Uh, Now, suddenly, it's just, oops, my bad. Yeah, and that's political posturing, without a doubt. And so all of the businesses, all of the people that were harmed and affected because of that foolishness, I mean, what is she going to do? Is she going to come back and, you know, write a personal check to those people whose lives she ruined because of these decisions that now she's saying, yeah, oops, my bad, I shouldn't have done it. So the Democrats are starting to realize, you know, if I've got to position myself nationally, I've got to start, you know, backing away from some of these things. She's probably looking at maybe getting an opportunity to run as a vice president presidential candidate or maybe even throwing a hat in for president. But it's not going to matter. Just the same as when you look at, uh, you know, our good friend Gavin Newsom out there in California, their policies speak for themselves. And we do not want to see the United States run that way. And coming back to what you said about Colorado, again, it's the major urban population centers that the left comes in, they overtake them. And of course, the cities surrounded by colleges and universities. And then the rest of the, the state does not matter, as, as you see with Western Colorado or some of the other places. And we'll never forget that California used to be a red state as well. And they gave us Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, and look at it today. So we have got to be smarter at city council races, county commission races, school board races. And it seems we're catching up, but we're always behind the left on realizing these things. Yeah, and and that's what I think is so frustrating is that it does always feel like the strategy from the Republican right is always playing catch up. And if we're Mm -hmm. in a defensive posture, then we're always losing ground instead of standing Mm -hmm. up for uh, what we genuinely believe in. And as a party saying, you know, here's where we stand. And anyone, of course, is welcome to be part of the Republican Party and vote conservative and vote Republican. But that doesn't mean that we're going to shift our perspectives and our policy platforms and all of that just to accommodate people in order to gain their vote that we're not going to gain anyway. And so, you know, so heading into uh, the 2024 cycle, I think you're totally right about Gretchen Whitmer that, um, you know, whether or not she has aspirations for 
for a higher office or um, she's just doing her part to try to help out the Democrat Party. I mean, I think it's probably closer to a lot of these uh, governors like Gavin Newsom out of California, potentially like Whitmer in Michigan. And others are seeing that, you know, Joe Biden probably... um, you know, he, he's probably not going to be able to competently run. I mean, definitely can't competently run, but whether, I mean, he's not a competent president right now anyways, but whether or not he'll mm-hmm. actually announce for reelection, they're chomping at the bet to say, okay, if he doesn't, or if the DNC somehow successfully gets him to say, to decline to run again, then, you know, who is the heir apparent for the Democrat party? And so I see some concessions like this from Whitmer, um, just trying to, to say, oh, you know, have amnesia, don't forget about all, you know, of how I tried to play petty tyrant and destroy all these businesses and forget about the fact that, you know, the Fed isn't bailing out all of these little businesses like they are SVB Bank. You know, where do they go to get uh, to be made whole? So they're hoping, the Democrats always are hoping that we forget the last few years of how they treated us when it comes to the ballot box. And so moving forward Mm -hmm. into 2024, how likely is it in your opinion that um, Joe Biden is going to announce a reelection campaign? I mean, I I think it's interesting that he hasn't yet. So I think that's potentially still just being contemplated uh, within the greater DNC. Well, I would tell you the longer that it takes for him to make that announcement, the the more I tend to believe that he will not be running. Uh, And when you look at everything that is building up and stacking up against him, I mean, now we've got this bank collapse issue. You know, we've got the issue with the border. We've got the issue with inflation. Uh, You saw the numbers that came out today with the uh, Consumer Price Index. Things are not going well policy-wise, and his image is is horrible. He, He is weak. He is a feckless president. He is being run over by the likes of of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and everyone else. Ukraine, he has gotten us into an economic morass now where we just keep writing blank checks to them. So I don't think that he is capable of running. And, and I believe that if we don't hear something from him within the next two or three months, uh, we're in the cycle for 2024. And, and I don't think he's going to be out there. Kamala Harris is definitely not an asset uh, whatsoever. So they've got to figure out what are they going to do to replace this very incompetent, uh, weak and failing team. And, and so that's what I see, you know, coming about. Yeah, and I would agree with you, uh, Alan West, who, of course, is the host of the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. You can find that on his Twitter page at Alan West or at Substack. And, uh, you know, and I would agree with you that, um, you know, even though the Democrats have tried for so long to prop up Kamala Harris as the heir apparent, they have tried so hard and just (laughs) utterly failed. I mean, it has been such an embarrassing disaster. But the Biden administration has just stood for all of this, you know, same DEI that is um, mm. the diversity, equity, and inclusion that is really, really harming so many other institutions. And um, it'll be interesting to see if the Democrats end up going back with somebody like a Gavin Newsom that, you know, hey, he's he's an older white guy. But then again, so yeah. is Joe Biden. And somehow he's the head of, of their party. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, we're out of time, Alan West. Always great to talk with you and could talk with you for uh, so much longer. So glad to have you as a regular guest. Appreciate that. And Thank again, um, yeah, thanks so much. Have a great day. And again, follow him at Alan West. And you can also follow, follow Jenna Ellis in the morning on social media at Jenna Ellis AM. And we also love to hear from you at our email address, Jenna at AFR.net. Enjoy the morning, get lots of coffee, and we'll see you tomorrow.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.